A sore subject for us in this program is the matter of junk science. We've had on people like Michael Shermer of Skeptic Magazine, whose column in Scientific American skewers charlatanism. Phil Plate of BadAstronomy.com was another good guest. Phil talked about the moon landings that were not faked and faces on Mars that were not really faces. In contemporary America, there's no worse example of scientific nonsense than creationism. Evolution is one of the pillars of modern biological science. Without it, biology just simply makes no sense. Yet Christian fundamentalists who believe that every word in the Bible is literally true have cooked up some sorry arguments against a scientific fact. As necessary to make their viewpoint, they twist data, ignore facts, and resort to out-and-out falsehoods. The current issue of New Scientist magazine has an excellent article titled, What Missing Link? Author Donald Prothero is a lecturer in geobiology at Caltech and professor of geology at Occidental College. His new book, Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters, explains the subject in detail. We wanted to start with the article in New Scientist, and happily, he's agreed to do this for us. Joining us now from Southern California is Donald Prothero. Welcome to Radio Parallax, sir. Thank you. There's a tone of indignation in your article that I quite like because I share it. Uh, Can we start with uh, Charles Darwin himself bemoaning back in 1859 that there were no transitional fossils, a thing that creationists claim is still true, but within a couple of years of publishing On the Origin of Species, that was no longer so. Can we talk about that that famous uh, fossil, Archaeopteryx, and what followed? Yeah, when Darwin wrote his book, of course, he really had only evidence that came from uh, living organisms, and there wasn't much in the fossil record to support it. But as, as we've just mentioned here, Archaeopteryx was found just two years later. Uh, by the 1870s, the famous uh, sequence of evolution of horses had been described, uh, first in Europe and then in North America, where, uh, where it came. And, you know, many more examples piled up. So by, you know, within about you know, 50 years after Darwin's book, it was, you know, it was well established. And you look at publications from the beginning of the 20th century, and, you know, they, they pretty much had lots and lots of examples to show. So it wasn't like there, it took very long for us to catch up. It is sort of remarkable that Darwin said, if my theory is correct, we'll find these, and he was soon uh, borne out. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, you, you have to realize that when Darwin wrote his book, paleontology was a very young field. I mean, serious paleontology was only really born early in the 19th century, and, uh, and collecting was just in its early stages. So, I mean, Darwin himself was one of the first early paleontologists, and there were not many others, you know, so it took a while for it. I mean, I feel they build up enough people and collect enough places so that these things might be found. Well, there's a misconception that the public has that uh, the transitional forms of life are sort of halfway between, say, a bear and a wolf. Can you explain why that's not really necessary? Yeah, that is a very common misconception. Uh, evolution moves by uh, small steps, and not every step has to happen at the same time. It's a phenomenon we call mosaic evolution. Every organism is like a little mosaic. It's got features, uh, all like little tiles of mosaic. Some may be more advanced than others, and not all go together in lockstep. Uh, a classic example of that is how humans evolved. Uh, for the longest time, people expected that all the features that make us human would all show up uh, and, and change about the same time. But uh, the fossil record of the last 30 years has shown that, for example, all the earliest hominid fossils we have, going back to 7 million years ago, uh, were bipedal from the very beginning. Bipedalism was one of the earliest hallmarks of being human, which was something that was not expected. And the thing that everyone did expect was mate with thing make us human, which is our large brain size, is a late addition. So, you know, we became bipedal, and a lot of other things that we saw, see as part of the human skeleton, appear early. And then uh, other things we think of as essentially human are late additions. They don't all come together at the same time. 
Let's go way back in time to 500 plus million years ago. In the fossil record, there's this sort of amazing explosion of fossilized life forms. Branching off of worms, there were arthropods, insects, crustaceans, and so on. And yet we know there's an intermediate form of life that's still with us. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, quite a few things that are intermediates from the Cambrian explosion are still with us, uh, including these uh, you know, uh, velvet worms or onocophorans, which are a, a living link, which has a fossil record as well, uh, connects arthropods to the other kinds of worms. There are um, very primitive mollusks still have segmentation known as uh, monopocophorans, which is still alive and known from the fossil record. So there are quite a few that actually link together, and it's, it's actually a remark we have as many as we do, because most of the transitional fossils or transitional things that would link the major phyla were soft-bodied and had very poor potential for, potential for fossilization. They say there's some so-called missing links between fish and amphibians. Oh, uh, right, right. But that's, you, you note that in your article, it's quite striking that that record about 370 million years ago was really very complete. Right. I mean, uh, if you look at the, the latest uh, uh, creationist books and the intelligent design creationist books, they will still cite 50-year-old or 60-year-old ideas about the transition from fish to amphibians and say, oh, there are no transitional forms. And it's pre pretty pathetic because, in reality, we've had a huge number of these discovered, uh, especially in the last 15 years, some of which have been high, very high profile. I mean, the discovery of this uh, fossil tiktaalik that's now on the bestseller list uh, has made the Colbert Report twice. <laughs> there's, no, there's no reason why creationists should ignore something as obvious as this, except that they don't want to know about it. Right. And they don't want any of their followers to know that these fossils are out there. Well, I think everyone uh, who loves biology loves dinosaurs. At about age five, I had a set of plastic dinosaurs, and one of them included this curious uh, sailfin animal that was called Demetrodon. And you noted in this article, this is not really a dinosaur, but is rather more close to be one of our ancestors. By, by, by we, I mean mammals. Right. Dimetrodon is a member of the group called the Synapsids, which is the lineage that ultimately gave rise to mammals. And, uh, yeah, it's prehistoric and it's cool-looking, but it doesn't make it a dinosaur. Dinosaurs are a very specific group of animals, and unfortunately, you know, you these kitty dinosaur kits, of which I had one when I was four years old, too. Uh, they will have woolly mammoths and saber-toothed cats thrown in there for good measure, and those are not dinosaurs either. It's anything that's prehistoric doesn't make it a dinosaur. But anyway, Synapsida is the group that used to be called mammal-like reptiles. Well, that terminology is now obsolete. Uh, but they are a whole lineage of animals that you start with. Dimetrodon, which only has just a few features like large canines and a, a, a large uh, temporal opening in the side of its skull that are features you find in the mammal lineage. And then as you go through these incredible array of these beautifully preserved specimens, uh, many are complete skeletons, quite a few good skulls, uh, we can see the entire transitional sequence over about a hundred million year span of time through the entire Pennsylvanian, Permian, and early Jurassic. So by the late Jurassic, we have things that everybody agrees are mammals. Uh, so this is an amazing transitional sequence because it's fossilized extremely well. Uh, again, most of the time creationists completely ignore it because they don't know how to cope with it. Well, among the dinosaurs, uh, interestingly, that they went from, uh, some of them anyway, went from land back to water with things like Ichthyosaurus. And again, very well documented. Yeah, actually, ichthyosaurs aren't dinosaurs either. That's another one that's okay. <laughs> commonly mistaken. But ichthyosaurs are marine reptiles that are distant related to a lot of the other reptiles. And, uh, you know, people have you know, heard about them. And, and the same is true of the plesiosaurs, the long neck things with the paddles that some people think the Loch Ness Monster would have been. Uh, both those things now have excellent fossils that, that link them to things that look nothing like them, look more like an everyday lizard. And uh, some are not even aquatic. So we have excellent transitional fossils there. In fact, for all the major group of marine reptiles, we have this. The, the mosasaurs, the ones that have the big long uh, snout and uh, you know, the big paddles, 
Uh, we knew from early on when they were first discovered they're related to monitor lizards like the Gowana and the Komodo dragon, but now we have excellent transitional fossils of them as well. And of course, a part two of this, this thing from land to water, mammals did it as well. You talk about whales and seals and such. And uh, That's right. That's right. I mean, uh, the transition of mammals going back to the water after having been land, mammal, land animals for a very long time is, turns out now to be very well documented, which was only the last 30 years or so this has now become true. Uh, the most famous examples are ones that are getting in the news all the time about these amazing transitional fossils that link land mammals to whales. And we're getting a whole slew of these now that are progressively more and more whale-like from an animal to a land animal. Um, and uh, the latest stuff, it was only found just a few years ago, shows that that closest relative in land is the distant ancestor of the hippopotamus clade. Uh, in fact, just a few weeks ago, announced in the pages of uh, science is this thing called Indohias, which is a real primitive relative of both whales and hippos. So it links the two lineages. Uh, so the whale lineage now is very well documented with dozens of really good skeletons. Uh, we have uh, several good skeletons now link us into from from bears into the uh, seal, sea lions, and walruses. Uh, the best specimen, which is known, <clears throat> known as Anoliarctos, comes from the early Miocene here in California. And then there, the lineage that leads from sea lion type things to walruses has an excellent transitional series. You can think, see things that are progressively more walrus like tusks and teeth and palate and all the rest. I have pictures of that in my book. Uh, and then finally, the, the manatees. We have quite a few fossil manatees that are known, but most of the ones until recently were just partial specimens and they looked uh, pretty much like, like very primitive manatees would be expected to look like. And then in 2001, my friend Daryl Domning at Howard University described a specimen from the Eocene of Jamaica that is a manatee with feet. Uh, and all living manatees, of course, have no hind legs at all and a, a, a you know, paddle-like tail and front flippers. This thing has completely normal land mammal feet and uh, or hands and feet. So it's called Pisisai and Portelli, the walking Cyrenian. So all three cases where land mammals have gone back to the water now have been pretty well linked together with amazing transitional fossils. Well, Dr. Prothler, there has been a bit of an explosion in recent years among finding all sorts of these. Is this from some new fossil beds in China, or what accounts for all the new data coming in? Oh, it's a combination of things. Uh, to a great extent, yes, China and the, the countries of the former Soviet Union and Mongolia have become more accessible to discoveries, uh, especially as you know, China has opened its uh, doors to Westerners in the last 15 years, and uh, you know the performance of a union changed political uh, affiliation, so it was easier for Westerners to get there as well. And so a lot of stuff that was in collections already or could have been collected if there were impetus from other sources has suddenly been collected in places you know underexplored, like uh, like much of Asia. Uh, but it's also a matter of luck. You know, sometimes you just hit amazing places and you get more specimens and. So, you know, uh, you know, if there are more paleontologists looking, more of them tend to be found, and there are more paleontologists now than there probably ever been in the history of humans. So there are just a lot more people looking as well. So a lot of these specimens are just coming from that. So it's a combination of those things. Our guest is Dr. Donald Prothrow, and his book is Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. And Dr. Prothrow, uh, one of the original things they speculated about in evolution was how the giraffe got its uh, long neck, and uh, it was very controversial. It looks like we now have figured that one out. Yes, uh, actually there are quite a few fossil giraffes that have been known for quite some time, better than a century, uh, but almost all of them are short-necked things. They look more like the modern Akapi, uh, the only other member of the living member of the giraffe family, and that is normal. Actually, most fossil and living giraffes are short-necked. It's just the one species that we all think of as long-necked is the atypical one. And as I was putting this book together and just getting it ready for press, my good friend Nico Salunias at the American Museum of Natural History in New York uh, has a 
paper coming out pretty soon, which allowed me to use the figure in advance of a specimen called Bolinia, which is a giraffe fossil with an intermediate-length neck. So we now have an actual transitional fossil with a neck that's not as long as a modern giraffe and not as short as most fossil giraffes. The sheer complexity of biology that, uh, that I think sometimes just, just amazes people. It's just a wonderful field. Yeah, it's a lot of fun because there's always new developments and there's always surprises. You know, it's not like you know, we thought we had all the answers and now we just uh, sit back on our, on our laurels like some people in the creationism school are doing it. We're always learning new things and sometimes we find out we're wrong about ideas. But that's how science works. It's self-correcting. It never has a final truth. It's always in the process of learning where we made mistakes and try to fix them. And that's a big contrast in the way creationists operate. They've already decided what answer they're going to find. And then they're constantly doing whatever they can to twist or bend the evidence to fit that. And that, of course, is not science. Well, among these new directions that it's taking, which ones are you finding most, uh, most intriguing? Um, well, there's lots of interesting ideas now, the way that we're, we're sorting out the relationship of organisms with molecular phylogeny. That's been probably one of the biggest growth fields of the last 20 years, especially the last 10 years, uh, which I can only just sort of watch from the sidelines. I can't retrain myself this, this uh, completely in my uh, part of my career. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of other fun stuff to watch. I mean, as I said, these transitional fossils coming in. And, and then for me, actually, my particular area of research, I work on fossil mammals, especially rhinos, horses, and camels, there's still a ton of uh, basic work that has to be done. Uh, I just published two years ago a big um, monograph, volume one monograph on all the North American rhinos, and nothing like that had been done in a century, and there's a lot of, until that book came out, a lot of undescribed, poorly understood rhino material that I managed to pull all together, and that to me is a much more, sometimes much more valuable and lasting contribution, because I know that monograph will be the standing reference for people to use long after I'm gone. And currently I'm working on the North American peccaries, the javelinas, which are an important group that has a good fossil record, and hoping uh, before I retire to get working on the North American camels. So that to me is, in some ways, it's not as glamorous as stuff that makes science or nature, but that's the foundation. That's the building blocks on which all this other stuff depends, and you have to go back and work on a lot of hard work and a lot of specimens to make that kind of stuff happen. Well, we're up against it on time, but I do want to ask you where you weigh in on the controversy about the things like the rhinos and the camels of the New World that seem to have disappeared from the fossil record. Uh, is man responsible? Well, the rhinos have vanished long before humans got here. All right. uh, they vanished five million years ago from, north, from the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the camels, horses, the mastodons, mammoths, all the rest are definitely disappearing around the same time frame as humans. But there's a lot of problems with that because it's also a dramatic period of climatic change that was more severe than any that had preceded it, so it's very hard to rule that factor out. And then just a year ago, started, people started arguing, oh, there's an impact that's caused it all, which I don't think has uh, as much explanatory power, but nonetheless, there are people who follow that idea as well. So yes, humans probably had an effect on it, but it's, you know, it's like in anything in the real world, it's lots of shades of gray. Anything that's all or nothing is probably false. Well, final question. Creationism, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to actually be spreading to some other countries. Uh, what can we do? Um, it's tough to do much because creationism is not about science. It's about religious dogma and about uh, you know, holding people into certain religious beliefs. And the people who espouse it basically don't know anything about evolution, that's, and they often they know that what they think they know is wrong, and that's why they're afraid of it. And I don't know how much you can change things as far as this country goes. Uh, creationism vanishes from the scene and becomes sort of invisible during times when we're in politically progressive periods, especially like during the 40s and 50s. Uh, and uh, during the 60s as well. And it comes out of the woodwork when we go to the swing to the right. And so I'm just hoping we have another swing to the left. 
Well, we'll all be watching what happens in the next few years. Our guest has been Dr. Donald Prothero, and the book is Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. His article, What Missing Link, is in the current issue of New Scientist magazine. Doctor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It was a good intro. All righty. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.